With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Back to the basics. Land of the races. George Zimmerman, Rush Limbaugh, Patriot, Claire Hood. Oh, we can still see your faces. Sean Donatella, I'm the face of the faceless. Back to the basics. Land of the races. George Zimmerman, Rush Limbaugh, Patriot, Claire Hood. Oh, we can still see your faces. Sean Donatella, I'm the face of the faceless. Pray for our heart and Oscar Grant and Sean Bell. This for Amadou Diallo, all my young black males. They killed him and chill, wanna throw us all in jail. This for Dan Roy Henry, cause the script is still here. It's the killer field here, but I never had no fear. I'm a 300 Spartan with my shield in my spear. You can call me Shaka Zulu, cause I hunt you like a deer. About to lynch him with lynch, hang him like a chandelier. Then you ain't up on Good afternoon and welcome to today's episode or broadcast of the Live Drive at 5 on Black Talk Radio. My name, of course, is Scotty Reed. I'm broadcasting from behind these enemy lines called the United States of America, uh, where they say liberty and justice for all. Uh, but again, you know, that's just a slogan. It's not really any kind of truth to that matter when it comes to non-white people uh, in this country. Uh, I haven't talked about this a lot, uh, but most of you have heard the news that the Department of Justice, the FBI, has finished this investigation of Darren Wilson, the killer of Michael Brown, and there will be no charges forthcoming. Now, I've talked about this a little bit on past broadcasts about, you know, uh, being insane when the same thing keeps happening. We expecting di- different results. That's the definition of insanity. And it's just, it's just sad. It's just sad, um, that you know, people just keep every time somebody gets killed, the grand, the local grand juries for whatever county, whatever, whatever state don't indict. Then, you know, we are told to put all our eggs in the Department of Justice basket. And what do what keeps happening? No charges, no charges whatsoever. And so it's just a sad state of affairs uh, that we live in. Here in the United States. And so when I say I'm broadcasting from behind enemy lines, that's because the United States of America, the predominant population of America, uh, treats us like we're the enemy. All right. To be gunned down, to be slaughtered, to be um, enslaved in mass numbers. And, you know, so I'm just I'm just looking at the signs. I'm paying attention to the evidence and I'm coming to a logical conclusion that. I live behind enemy lines, all right? Uh, Sky Reed may not be on a prison plantation right now, but many of his brothers and sisters are, and that's a problem. That's a big problem. Um, one of the reasons why this goes on and on in black lives don't matter is what the United States government and, you know, again, all the states, different counties, show us every day that black lives don't matter. And one of those reasons is because of media propaganda that portrays us all as criminals, as thugs, as, you know, rapists, murderers. And I mean, you name it, any kind of uh, derogatory message they can put out there about us, they will do 
as a group. You know, they demonize us as a group of people. And so, you know, I've talked about often how Malcolm X has talked about the media and how he has talked about, you know, it has the power to control the minds of the masses. It can make the innocent look guilty and the guilty look innocent. And unfortunately, the dominant media in this country is making us look like we're guilty of crimes. Before we've been convicted, before we've been tried, yeah, we're just all guilty. And therefore, you know, it's no problem with police extrajudicially murdering us in the street. So when I came across this media campaign, this social media campaign, um, letters to Trayvon, I thought it was a worthy campaign because, again, uh, you know, media is so powerful and, you know, we're being made to look like thugs and criminals. And, you know, even when you look at media so-called produced by us or with us so-called included in this media, when we look at the uh, rap music and the corporations that control it and the people that control it that do not look like us who push these artists, some of them do it willingly. Uh, but I've had the opportunity to talk to people in the industry who lost record deals because they wanted to present a more positive image, a more positive uh, message in their music. And, you know, they're prevented from doing that. And so, you know, the images are everywhere. The media is everywhere. And so when I came across this campaign, Letters to uh, Trayvon, I thought it was, you know, we should engage in this. Uh, you might think, oh, what difference is it going to make? Uh, you know, I can't answer that question. But if it's something positive, is it? if it's something constructive, if it's going to have me doing something that I engage in all day anyway, because I put out a lot of propaganda images through social media uh, to convey, you know, the messages that I want out there. And so, you know... I say, I thought, yeah, people need to know about this. The Black Talk Radio Network family needs to know about this. Our listeners need to know about this. All the followers on social media that we have, they need to know about this social media campaign uh, to flood the Internet with positive images of black men and boys. Uh, I would even throw in black women because uh, our black women are increasing target for the prison plantation. Uh, also, you know, plenty of female black victims of, of police violence and whatnot. So, you know, although it doesn't say that about black women, I'm going to include black women in my images. Okay, so we will be joined here in just a bit by Lawanda Horton, uh, who is going to talk to us about the media campaign for black positive images to flood the Internet on uh, certain dates in February uh, called Letters to Trayvon. And, of course, you know, February, well, you know, February 26th, that's my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. February 26th is when it'll start, and I will keep reminding people of the as we get closer to that date. But, again, we're going to talk to uh, Sister Lawanda Horton about this campaign, how it got started why it got started, and, yeah, we just want to get that information. Now, after I get through speaking with her, in case you haven't had an opportunity to read my article, uh, I guess you can call it an article, you can call it a film review of the PBS film documentary, Clansville, USA. Now, this this film was actually put out in 2013, and NPR did a 
uh, audio, you know, a radio interview with uh, the author of the book, but I'm not talking about the book. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the book, Clansville, USA, but I did have an opportunity to watch the documentary film online, and I didn't like what I what I uh, was exposed to. I didn't like the message or the subliminal messages that it was putting out. I thought it was kind of deceptive. So I wrote an article about it, a film review, if you will. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, uh, excuse me, to read it, uh, I'm going to talk about it a little bit today because I think it is uh, relevant uh, that we also discuss, you know, armed black resistance and look at, back at some of the ancestors and what they did. And, you know, I also, uh, read through the book and watched the film, uh, what, what is it? Gun, uh, Negroes with Guns written by Robert F. Williams. And then I found out that, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was the co-author of that book. And so there are some interesting angles. Uh, Robert F. Williams said that nonviolence resistance paired with armed self-defense could coexist. And he gave examples of how it was working in North Carolina. Oh, yeah, Clansville, USA is about North Carolina, my home state. Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely going to talk about that. Um, if you have any commentary, any thoughts you want to share on that, or what our guests will be coming on to speak about, then feel free to give us a call. Uh, that telephone number is 530-881-1400. Access code 549-032-POUND. And then hit star six and the number one to uh, buzz the host. All right, so we uh, should be joined by our guests here just a bit. Let me make sure the studio line is open until uh, after they call in, and then I'll close off the studio line. Uh, you'll still be able to call in to the, uh, I guess we can call it the uh, conference line. That's what it is, really, uh, the conference line for the listeners that would like to add something. Uh, let me see. Still haven't heard anything new in terms of the FBI investigation into the NAACP bombing uh, that took place in, what, where was that, in Colorado? Um, yeah, Colorado, uh, the name, I think it was Colorado Springs. Uh, yeah, no new information to report on that. I promised that I was going to keep up with that story, so I don't have any new information uh, to report. They're, they haven't caught anyone. They haven't said that they have found new leads. Uh, still, we only have the drawing of the suspect, which, you know, it really just it's a poor drawing. I don't know if I can identify anyone uh, from that particular drawing that they put out there. So, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep up with that story. And, um, you know, I, I really don't expect them to even find anyone. I really don't. They have found people in the past that have tried to uh, engage in acts of violence against uh, in, um against the NAACP and um so yeah but we're going to watch that story uh follow that story closely um I do believe we are joined by our scheduled guest uh sister Lawanda Horton do we have you on the line Yes you do Uh thank you for joining us today Oh thank you so much for having me Well it, I felt like you know it's our duty as a independent black media outlet to assist 
um, in getting the word out whenever we see constructive and positive things uh, and campaigns that's being, you know, mounted by our people. And I came across this campaign and I had to immediately reach out because of my study of propaganda and media. Um, I just felt like, you know, this is a can this is probably something we need to do 365 days a week, really, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So if you would, can you just share a little bit about yourself and, and the kind of work you're engaged in? Anything that you feel comfortable uh, sharing before we jump into the details of this media campaign? Absolutely. Um, so my name is Lawanda Horton Sauter, and I'm the president and CEO of Mission Incorporated. And what Mission Incorporated does is it helps um, to build communities by uh, helping individuals start nonprofit organizations and small businesses. We also help existing businesses build their capacity um, by helping them with grant writing um, and to train their board of directors and do um, strategic planning. So um, so that's our, our day-to-day. So we're always giving back. We're a social entrepreneurship, and um, we're really, really committed to changing communities by empowering the individuals who live in them to um, to seek other forms of employment, to seek other opportunities for um, pursuing their life goals. Is there a website that people can visit for that? Yes, that's going to be um, our missioninkdevelopment.com site. So that's www.missioninkdevelopment.com. And we currently have clients all over the country. That's great. That's great. Um, now, let's get into this social media campaign, which is designed to flood the Internet and social media with positive images of black men and boys. Uh, also, it's asking for articles, quotes, poetry. Um, I, you know, I know a lot of writers. I know uh, some spoken word artists, uh, internationally known spoken word artists. So I hope that they will take part. Uh, also, a lot of independent, uh, positive black music being put out. Um, unfortunately, not so much by the mainstream radio corporations, but, you know, we try to give them airplay. And so, you know, I, I really um, see value in this campaign. Like I said before, this is something we probably should be doing 365 days a week as a counter propaganda effort to all the negative images that's being put out by us. But can you tell us uh, le- letters to Trayvon? And, of course, I've linked to it. Uh, those who are not on blacktalkradionetwork.com, you can get to this website, letters to Trayvon.com. Um, Sister Horton, can you tell us how this got started, uh, who envisioned it, and, you know, just how, how this all came about? Yeah. So, um, so I'm sure, you know, many of us after um, the death of Trayvon Martin were, you know, filled with feelings of, you know, like what's next, and you know, this this can't, this type of thing can't happen, and what do we do? And and I was one of those people as a black female. This isn't something that hits me directly, but it hits me indirectly. In in the in these challenges of my father and my brothers and of my uncles and of my soon to be sons, you know, um, it's an issue that really just didn't sit right with me. That, um, that we would allow essentially, um, society to tell us that the value of a young black man's life 
is um is non existent essentially. And um so, you know, I took to social media, I I had planned to start this campaign and, and about two years after Trayvon's death I went on to Twitter and I saw on the anniversary of his death that, that myself and one other person two years later had mentioned him. And um that was a problem for me. Of course we had the Eric Garner since then and and you know, we had the Michael Brown case and, and several cases unfortunately since then. But what happened was Trayvon Martin two years after his death was essentially not being discussed at all on any social media outlet um, on the anniversary. And so that was problematic to me. And then Trayvon became a symbol of something bigger in our society, which is um, the degree to which we have forgotten and forget each and every day um, what the experience is like for young black men all over the country just every single day. Um, and so when you see a wrong in society, the first thing you should do is try to come up with a solution. And I mean real solutions. I don't mean getting together, shouting and hollering, having some praise dancers show up. I mean really doing something that will counteract the negative. So I came up with this concept of doing the event called Letters to Trayvon, and one of the major components of it is to post positive images of black men and boys on all social media networks for an entire year to really change the narrative um, and to change the way that black men are viewed, but also the way that they view themselves. Oh, now, I believe there's no dumb question. Uh, but I'm going to ask this question anyway. Um, I know the answer to it, but other people, you know, they may not get it yet. Um, but you said that society basically is telling us black lives do not matter. When you say society, uh, in what ways is the overall American society telling us our, our, our lives don't matter in your, your view? I think that from the time that we're young, when we're in a history class, we learn about black history in a way that is detrimental to the black psyche, detrimental to, you know, the black experience and our knowledge of self. We learn nothing about people who look like us, who have done more than just struggle and overcome obstacles and get beaten and, you know, be oppressed. We learn nothing more than that in school and year after year when you do learn about different leaders they're leaders who come from a place of struggle and so I think that struggle then becomes a part of our identity it becomes a part of our own personal history and so um, you know that narrative has carried on in all aspects of our lives so, you know, it starts with our education system, then it's continued in our free time by way of television and music. This sense that um, black accomplishment is lacking and black struggle is in abundance. And I think that we need to celebrate more 
black achievement because it does, in fact, exist. And this campaign has been an effort to help or assist the media if they're having difficulties with um, finding these kinds of stories to assist them with finding these kinds of stories. Um, do you think, let, let me ask it this way. Do you believe that there is possibly a concerted effort, uh, whether it's through news media, whether it's through popular media to present uh, our young black men, uh, our black men, period, you know, in a negative light? Um, do I think that there is a concerted effort? Let me let me give you an example. Let me I'll give you an example. Um, one of our media partners, the context of white supremacy, uh, had on a guest, a white female from New York City, and she was talking about the subject of violent crime and whatnot. Um, and, and she said, as a matter of fact, you know, I mean, it's not fact, but she said it in a matter of fact way that black people could commit the most violent crimes. And so I asked her, I called in and I asked her, I said, you know, where are you getting this information from? She said, well, my television news. So that's what I mean. Do do you think that there is a concerted effort uh, through through media to always be uh, putting uh, a black face on violent crime in this country? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't I would I would be careful not to say concerted effort. What I would say instead is that there is an abundance of ignorance. I think also that there is a discomfort with sharing positive black images. So, you know, in order for, um, in order for there to be, um, in order for there to be a change in the way that black men and boys are perceived, I do believe that there needs to be a greater level of comfort in white America with the idea of black male achievement, of of the achievement of black females, of the achievement of black people. And that is something I, I believe our society is not comfortable with, is not used to. Um, I believe that stems from, you know, segregation and a very... Um, disconnected, disjointed, um, you know, history. And so, um, yeah, I mean, certainly there are individuals who benefit from, um, you know, from holding back certain groups of people. Um, there are definitely individuals out there who benefit from that. What, I what think that America as a whole, however, mm -hmm. has been grossly undereducated about African-Americans and their experience. What are some of those elements of society um, in, in your mind do you believe it are, is benefiting? And what kind of ways are they benefiting? Um, I mean, to be quite honest with you, I believe that there are people of all races who benefit from um, certain at certain individuals or, or African-Americans or low-income individuals in our community um, struggling. There are people of all races who benefit from that. There are black leaders who benefit from that, whether we like to talk about that or not. Um, I think that it comes, you know, largely down as an economic issue. I think that there are too few um, bowls of soup and too many people hungry 
And so we have individuals in our, within our society that as the economic conditions in this country become less and less stable, need to do whatever they can to stay on top. And what that means a lot of the time is that, you know, um, certain groups of people are going to become more aggressive in their attempt to um, maintain power, um, and others are going to suffer more as a result. Do you believe, um, you know, I don't like to call it mass incarceration, but that's the term that has been coined, and uh, most people know what you're talking about, but we call, we call it prison slavery um, mm-hmm. under the 13th Amendment. Um, do do you think do you think that the prison industrial complex, 21st century slavery and human trafficking, is it benefiting from the demonization of of black men and, and I would even include black women since they're an increasing population in 21st century slavery? Do you do you think that they are benefiting from all of this this negativity that is projected onto black bodies? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, these are businesses. I think people forget that both prisons and hospitals are businesses um, that, that, um, that benefit, that financially profit from uh, people needing to use their services. And, um, you know, one area of, I would say that there would, there would be no prison industrial complex without the leadership that provides the funding in um, and the tools by which these um, and these facilities can thrive, and so mm-hmm. we do have a leadership problem also in this country um, that further perpetuates the um, school to prison pipeline. Um, I also think that you know we we need to look at in our within our own community certain levels of responsibility, but I think that. All of that is is a part of this project. This project is certainly an effort to stay, mm-hmm. regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what you're seeing all around you. There are other things that you can be and do. And so I think the media benefiting, I think the prison industrial complex benefiting, um, they have the money and the resources to put this you know, the ad, to, to put the advertising out there. They have the money and the resources to make sure that the message around black men and boys is the message that we're currently seeing. And um, I think that our community needs to, um, you know, come, come, you know, behind, rally behind projects like this one um, and, and really come together on behalf of these black men and boys and, and show us photos of your sons. Show us what they're doing what they're doing in their free time. And, um, you know, this, this, like the, like you said, that woman, um, that you were referring to, her, her, her facts are off. You know, and this is, there's a, there are a lot more black people in this country than the ones that we see in the newspaper. There are everyday people. My husband calls them the silent majority. There's a silent majority of people who get up and work every day and do the right thing or try to. You know, but there's systemic racism that prevents them from, you know, fully reaching their potential. And, and a lot of people fall prey to um, these traps. And those traps will put you into a facility that was just waiting for you. Um, and, and I have a question related um, to the power 
of media. I've often, you know, find myself in de- free speech debates with people because uh, I'm not a free speech absolutist. Um, there is a project, uh, ongoing project that's been going on for over a year now called Clear the Airways uh, Project. And what they work to do is to clear the air- airwaves uh, of the radio stations, FM, AM radio stations in black communities, often not owned uh, by, you know, black people because we're losing individual ownership of black radio stations, but owned by corporations and conglomerates like Clear Channel. And so, you know, when we're getting all of this misogynistic music images, uh, whether, you know, it's the music videos and, and whatnot, um, you know, promotion of criminal activity, drug dealing, the promotion of black on black, black crime. Um, where, where do you stand on that issue in terms of, you know, projects like that to clear the airways and get more positive, you know, images, artists and their music on our quote unquote public airways? Cause these are federally licensed airways that quote unquote belong to the community. Where would you stand on such a project? I mean, I think that that's absolutely essential, you know, moving forward, you know, as we enter a new time and, and the black consciousness is, is at an all-time high in terms of, you know, a lot of the events, the events of late have given people um, a wake-up call. More people than you realize have a wake-up call now. They're more interested in listening to um, people, you know, talk about the issues on the radio. They're more interested in hearing conscious rappers. They're more interested in going to poetry open mics and, and voicing their opinions on um, what's going on in the world today. So, I mean, I absolutely would be in support of something like that. However, I think that another responsibility lies in our home. Because when I was younger, which was not that long ago, I listened to some really, you know, seedy and spicy stuff. But I knew because of my upbringing that the things that I was hearing were actually humorous and were um, for entertainment value. I didn't then get up and go and behave in such a way as to emulate the things that I was hearing on the radio. So I think that there is a collective responsibility um, I think that, you know, those individuals who have the power, the influence, and the resources within the black community to um, to drive that message need to make the message more even. Right now, it's 90% nonsense, you know, and 10% of it is the good stuff that's not even being heard. So essentially, it's 100% nonsense. And what I would like to see is, you know, I'm not saying we have to get rid of the nonsense. Sometimes that stuff is, you know, it's humorous, it's entertaining, you learn a new dance, you know, whatever. But I think that we need to, um, the, the, the airwaves need to be leveled out. Like we need to be hearing more of the other stuff. Balance. Because there is a desire for it. Balance. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, now let, let's talk more about what what kind of um just for clarity purposes um how do people should they like when they put out something in relation to this social media campaign which begins Thursday February 26th of this year at 7:30 p.m. and it's going to end 2 days later February the 28th at 7:30 
PM? Should they like, is there a tag so that you can, you know, kind of gauge participation? Should we tag it like letters to Trayvon or, or something like that? Yeah, there's a couple of ways. First, you want to go to the website, which is www.letterstotrayvon.com. You can learn about the whole campaign, which is a social media campaign. We're looking for letters from school-age students about their experiences with racial profiling. Um, those can be emails to um, letterstotrayvon at gmail.com. We also um, have an exhibit where we're going to be showcasing black male artwork, and Tracy Martin, Trayvon's father, is actually going to be coming and getting interviewed here in Philadelphia um, at Arcadia University on February 28th as part of this project. So you do want to go to the www.letterstotrayvon website to learn about the entire campaign. But if you want to participate right now online, you want to go to the Letters to Trayvon Facebook page, and like it, and join. Um, you want to post positive images of black men and boys in your life using the hashtag LTT2015, stands for Letters to Trayvon 2015, so LTT2015, and that can be on Twitter, Instagram, um, all of your social media networks, including Facebook. You would just post a picture with the hashtag um, and shout out any kind of words of support, any kind of poetry, any kind of support around this project. Um, um, another question, um, how how are Trayvon's part parents doing? Um, Trayvon's mom was in Philadelphia about three days ago, um, doing a talk at University of Penn. And um we're really quite thrilled to have Mr. Martin come here, although it's a very sad, you know, occasion, you know, for him I'm sure. Um, so close to the anniversary of his son's death, which will be 20, the 26th of February of this year. He'll be coming to us a few days later on the 28th, um, and being interviewed. Um, I think that the family has been involved in a lot of things around the Eric Garner and Michael Brown cases. So, um, they've been doing their work around the country, um, just providing support for other families. So, you know, it seems like they're in a place right now where they're strong enough to um, to be coming and rallying around others. Um, and I think that that's an important thing for our families who have been through this to do. Um, earlier, and, and I know we're just about to wrap up our segment with you, but I, I have to ask because, you know, earlier you were talking about, you know, we have to be involved in providing solutions and, and you know, that we're all part of this regardless of race. Um, that there are things that we could be doing. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned Eric Gardner, the lack of an indictment in, in that. Um, the, the Justice Department, I imagine, is is probably investigating. I'm not sure on the details, but we just heard that Darren Wilson uh, will not be charged or there's a high probability that he will not be charged for violating, violating the rights of Michael Brown. Uh, the Department of Justice also investigated George Zimmer, Zimmerman, murderer of Trayvon uh, Martin, and no charges were filed. This is This has the community as a collective uh very frustrated very frustrated and you know have you thought about these things and uh any possible solutions or identifying the problem because it just seems like you know that it if those counties don't indict 
um, that the Department of Justice investigates, that the outcome always seems to be the same, and the message is the same, that mm-hmm. black lives don't matter. Yes. I think that there's a couple things that we can do right now. You know, um, anytime this issue, I, I've been in a couple of Facebook forums where, you know, someone on the forum comes up with a solution or a project like the one that I'm doing, and, and then you have at least 17, 18 other people who say, but what's that going to do? And I think that if we looked at, you know, the bus boycotts of the 60s and said, what's that going to do? We wouldn't be where we are today. And so one of the things we need to do is come behind projects like this one and believe that each project that we're involved in, it contributes to a greater change over time. And we need to be able to see long-term, you know, the the potential impact. We need to essentially, like Dr. King, have a dream because right now, we're very we're very skeptical of progress and skepticism um, is it, it doesn't help. It doesn't move us forward in the direction that we need to go. I think another thing that we need to do is we need to hold more offices. We need to hold more elected um, you know positions. And so um, you know becoming active in your local government now and finding out what it takes to become you know, an area ward leader, a committee person, a city councilman, you know, those are the kinds of things that we can do now to have greater leadership, um, you know, so that things like this are, are being frowned upon, are being um, watched and checked by, um, by individuals who represent our community. And I think finally we really have to do something around the power of the black dollar. Because we do live in America. We do live in a, a capitalist, you know, nation. And those with the most are heard the loudest. And I think that we have the opportunity in the black community to really allow our resources to speak for us by coming behind and supporting um, black businesses that can employ black people who can have you know, um, power positions, um, you know, uh, you know, cr- uh, creative economy, you know, uh, uh, you know, to be able to mentor young men and boys, to have them not on the street after school, but to have them working in strong black businesses. So, um, you know, like I said, there's, there's a, there's a 100 black businesses component to this campaign that we're doing where we're trying to get, um, black businesses from all over to donate $100 to come to show their support for these black men and boys, to show them that they care, to show them, look, I run a real estate company. I run a law firm. I am a black doctor. We, we want those stories to be told, and we want our community to be overall strengthened. Um, is there anything you would like to say in closing? Again, if you would, give out, you know, the website, the social media, where they, we can link up with you on social media, um, it's well um, closer to the date, uh, which is what just about thirty days from now when this this yeah. campaign <laughs> kicks off. So yeah, yeah. we certainly um, would like to have you back on, you know, just as to remind our listeners that this campaign is going to start. But any final thoughts uh, and information you would like to give out at this point? 
I really think that, um, you know, one, um, I just want to emphasize uh, as a people our coming together and our, you know, um, not falling for uh, a lot of the messages that are designed to separate us. And, um, you know, that's going to be what's crucial in the coming days and years um, as the world becomes increasingly, um, you know, chaotic for for, for for all people. I think that we're heading in a very um, uncomfortable direction, and it's possible to reverse that, but it's going to require a strong connection within the black community and then the openness. Um, and the willingness to have dialogue with other communities about how we all can coexist. Um, and I think also, you know, we would love to have people visit the, the Letters to Trayvon website, www.letterstotrayvon.com. Um, follow us on Twitter, at LTT2015. Um, use that hashtag, hashtag LTT2015, to post your support of this campaign and your images of black men and boys um, that are in your life. And um, I think that we can, this is one of the small projects I think that will um, contribute to uh, to that, that future change. All right. Um, well, Sister Luanda Horton, I want to thank you for mounting uh, this media campaign, Malcolm X taught me that media is very powerful most powerful entity on the face of the planet it controls the minds of the masses and so i'm wholeheartedly uh behind this and i would even tell listeners you know we should be doing this every day you know what i'm saying we should be highlighting positive uh black life in the social media every day because i see a whole lot of unfortunately i see a whole lot of garbage you know things that's distracting us and actually dividing us being put out there even by people that look like us so we got to overcome all all of that and we have tools that our ancestors did not have uh we seen how social media has been very key in all of the protests that's been going around uh going on nationwide we have seen how it has been used a to, as a tool to organize in other countries and so yes please please take this serious and um you know participate and, and make it a habit make it a habit uh sister horton thank you again for joining us and you have a blessed evening thank you so much for having me good night yeah. all right that was uh sister lawanda Horton about this campaign. Um, I do have some thoughts about some of the things that she said in terms of the uh, electoral uh, politics. Uh, those who know me, I do vote. I do vote. I do think it is important to vote to elect elected leaders. But again, you know, um, a lot of black elected leaders have signed this legislation and funded the militarization of cops. So I want to talk a, a little bit about that. Uh, then I also uh, get into uh, my review of Clansville, USA, which is which is a documentary film about the Ku Klux Klan in my home state of North Carolina, at which point had the largest uh, membership base anywhere from 10,000 to 15,000, uh, due paying members. You know, these people were willing to, to invest their money into white supremacy and advance it cause, uh, its cause. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. Those who've had a chance to read, uh, my article, um, the article 
let me give you the name. I should know it right, but I write a lot. <laughs> I'm posting a lot of stuff. The whitewashing of armed black resistance in um North Carolina by the film Clansville, USA. If you've had an opportunity to read that, if you had an opportunity to watch the film, I would uh, certainly uh, like to get your thoughts on that as well. So uh, please call in and share if you have something to share. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we'll get into everything I just said. We have to begin to move to control our community. Everything that's in your community that you don't control is a weapon against you. Public education as it exists today is a weapon against black people. TV and news media, especially the WPP, White Power Press, White People's Paper, and White People's Power, are enemies against black people. What the white press does is that it makes black people an enemy of black people. This is Brother Elliot, host of Time for an Awakening, and you're listening to Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennium. back to black talk radio this is the live drive at five my name of course is scotty reed and i'm broadcasting from behind these enemy lines uh speaking of brother elliot if y'all missed that program last night time for awakening uh which comes on at seven o'clock p.m every sunday y'all missed a great program man y'all should go check that out uh their blog they maintain their own uh, audio blog and it is time for an awakening dot blogspot.com time for an awakening dot blogspot.com i'm not sure if they got their uh dot com name working uh yet or not uh but it was an excellent uh broadcast um it answered i mean it just really talked about a whole lot of things uh in terms of black history in terms of why we should be uh uh, calling for the lifting of sanctions on Zimbabwe, lifting of the sanctions on Cuba, about our, our uh, African diaspora down there in Cuba, uh, talked about black resistance. Just talk, I mean, it was a great interview. Uh, brother, uh, brother Obi, I can't think of his last name right now, uh, but man, I'm telling you, that was a, a fantastic broadcast last night so uh you know support black independent media and uh you'll get the information that you won't get on npr national public radio no you ain't not gonna get that kind of information you're not gonna get uh you know truthful accurate information from public broadcasting uh services or system or whatever pbs uh stands for uh but before i i get more in into that uh let, let me just say this about uh voting I do vote. Um, I'm registered to vote, been registered to vote since I was 18 years old. Uh, one of the reasons that I uh, wanted to uh, register to vote was to, you know, do my civic duty as I was told and, and whatnot. Um, I have seen my vote not make any changes whatsoever in terms of the federal government. Um, I live in a 
they call North Carolina a purple state because sometimes it's blue, sometimes it's red. Uh, Barack Obama carried uh, North Carolina, I believe, until he ran against Mitt Romney. I think Mitt Romney carried this state. Um, but um, I have seen I have seen my vote make a difference in terms of of local politics, in terms of the black chief justice over the county courthouse um, who, you know, my family has known for a long time. Uh, was involved in the civil rights movement uh, back in the 60s. Um, he was honored for some of his work in, in, in civil rights. Uh, I actually, unfortunately, uh, was involved in a criminal case uh, where someone said that I communicated threats against them, and uh, technically he found me guilty, but then when he saw uh, my antagonist approach me in the courtroom and get up in my face, um, next thing I know, my conviction, uh, disappeared, wasn't on my record anymore. So, uh, yeah, uh, school boards, things of that nature. Um, although I live in a county that's probably 75, 80% white, um, we're still getting the brainwashing, indoctrinating, um, same school curriculum. And that's why I took it upon myself to educate, uh, supplement my children's education, um, you know, they're, they've both graduated from high school. Now I got one more daughter that's in high school, but she's in another County. Um, so yeah, it, it can make a difference later. I found out that's how they pick the people on the jury pool. Uh, we have a guest that's coming on. Um, I believe it's later this week or possibly next week, brother Christopher Irvin out of Baltimore, uh, to come on and no, it's not brother Christopher Irvin It's someone else. Um, that uh, said they wanted to to write about and talk about jury nullification, which we actually talked about last week on New Abolitionist Radio Heard right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. And what jury nullification is is where you vote not guilty, where you judge the law and not the person. Is this law correct? Is this law just? Now, I know technically they may have proven a case, but I don't agree with the law. You know, I don't agree with sentencing people to slavery, you know, 21st century slavery and human trafficking for consuming any kind of drug. You know, I would much rather, I think it would be more constructive if that person was encouraged to, to seek treatment, uh, for, you know, whatever addiction they may have. Uh, it's a medical issue. It's not a criminal issue. Uh, also, in case they're selling drugs, you know, why I don't advocate you know, the selling of drugs like crack cocaine, heroin, and things of that nature. I know that the United States government is the one that is facilitating uh, the transport of drugs coming into this country. And if you think I'm just making things up, oh, Scotty, you're lying. Um, there, you can Google stuff about uh, United States troops guarding the poppy fields, which heroin is made from uh, in Afghanistan. And how the Taliban had eliminated poppy production. And then once NATO took control of the country, all of a sudden we're getting bumper crops of poppy. Heroin is very cheap, uh, cheap on the streets of, of, um, America. All right. Um, do a Google search on the DEA in the Sinaloa drug cartel and how the, uh, C the DEA cut a deal with them to allow them to smuggle their drugs. Uh, they primarily smuggle drugs to Chicago, 
uh, 80% of the drugs on the streets of Chicago uh, are uh, by this one drug cartel called the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, so, yeah, you know, so, again, I'm not, I, I, if I'm going to convict somebody of drug trafficking and stuff like that, it's going to be a kingpin. It's going to be somebody like, uh, what was that guy named Oliver North, Colonel Oliver North? It's going to be somebody like, you know, Ronald Reagan, although he's dead now. Yeah, uh, those are the people, CIA agents. Yeah, uh, you know, the whole Contra, uh, Iran Contra, uh, cocaine trafficking into the United States so that they could then provide guns uh, to uh, the enemies of capitalism. Uh, in South America supporting death squads and things of that nature. So no, I'm not, I don't care if the dude got a kilo. If he got a kilo of powder cocaine, I'm not convicting him because you know what? Um, you're not really trying to stop this cocaine from coming into the country or being manufactured at all. So why should I go after the, the low man on the totem pole while, you know, uh, the ones who are at the top are being protected? Uh, when you do not indict and prosecute, and I'm not talking about civil prosecution or civil penalties, I'm talking about criminal prosecutions for bankers who have been uh, uh, proven or they admitted guilt to laundering drug money. But no, did they get a prison sentence? No, they didn't get no prison sentence. What happened to them? Oh, well, we'll just promise we won't do it again, and we will give you a portion of the profits we made to the U.S. government, and we'll call it a day. And I'll get to keep my job and, you know, keep doing the same thing over and over. So, no, I am not convicting some petty dealer for a drug crime. I'm going to practice jury notification. Uh, although I've only been called to sit on the jury one time, and that was in a, a property dispute case, uh, between two white people, and I told the judge, no, I much rather uh, go with my daughter to uh, this black college to, you know, see if she wants to attend there. And no, I, I'm not interested in, um, you know, uh, settling any kind of dispute between white people. You know, they can handle that themselves. And, and I got out of it. But if it had been a criminal trial, you most definitely better believe uh, I'd have been doing my best and telling them everything they wanted to hear. Um, so that I could sit on that jury. All right. So, yeah. So, you know, we have to, we have to recognize that, you know, there are tools, but we have to recognize how, just how far those tools will get us. You know, will, will they make a difference? Cause again, I've talked about this in the past. We have elected a whole bunch of black people to Congress and other non-white people and they go along with the program. They support the drug war. Uh, they support mass incarceration. They could say all the little things to the media that they want about, oh, this is a travesty and this and that. But then when you look at their record, well, then why did you vote for it? Okay, why did you vote to militarize the police and give them all of this surplus military uh, equipment? Haven't you seen Selma? Haven't you seen what the police have been doing to us all these decades? And why would you do such a thing? So, you know what I'm saying? And then when we do get a conscious uh, black representative in the Congress like a Cynthia McKinney, well, because she do does what she's supposed to do and call out white supremacy and go after the big criminals like, you know, the Pentagon losing $1 trillion, uh, dying court engaged in human trafficking in a sex scandal, uh, sex ring, 
in Africa going after Donald Rumsfeld. Oh, no, we she's just causing too many ways. We didn't elect her to to put these white people on the spot. Oh, no, we didn't elect her to dig into all of this stuff and go after the uh, most criminal people on the planet. And so then you elect somebody you don't support her and then but you do support her. Uh, what's his name? Harold Johnson, who we have invited to this program, uh, but have yet to hear back from them. We got one communication that they will relay it to the media communication officer for, uh, Congressman Harold Johnson so that we can talk to him about this bill that he's introducing to reform the grand jury system. You know, where I took a look at that, I shared it. Other people had commentary. And, you know, the only thing it's doing is proposing is that whenever there is these type of Michael Brown cases, Eric Gardner cases, is that we, you know, automatically appoint a special prosecutor, um, I guess a special grand jury. And, you know, again, you know, that's not solving the problem because they appointed a special prosecutor in Ohio that decided that, um, you know, Ronald Ritchie was a good citizen when he called and made a false 911 report on John Crawford III and that that cop whose name I can't remember is just so many of these criminals and thugs and killers and murderers out there. I can't, I can't be expected to remember all their names, but you know that he did nothing wrong. Um, yeah, John Crawford did nothing wrong either, but this cop didn't do anything wrong either by just gunning him down within seconds of contact, not giving him a chance. So yeah, that was a special, uh, prosecutor. All right. So, you know, we have to look at it in the context of, of white supremacy. This is, this is how the, the system is designed to work. And so, you know, I would rather ask Harold Johnson, uh, Congressman Harold Johnson, uh, well, what about some legislation to classify racial profiling as a hate crime? How about pushing the American government to implement this third treaty that is signed and ratified in during Reagan's administration, that's the conference to eliminate racism and discrimination that the United States has signed as a matter of fact to this treaty, but refuses to implement it. So again, you know, I, I, I vote, but at the same time, I understand why people don't vote and I don't criticize them for not voting. But I primarily vote um, to elect school board members, to elect district court judges in my county. So, yeah, th those were my thoughts on that. Um, now, I want to jump into uh, briefly, because I wrote an article about it, and I linked it uh, for you in the program description. If you're listening to the podcast later, um, you can certainly, you know, click on that link and go read my article about uh, this 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 media, this propaganda media. See, we tend to look at stuff and and we think it's exposing white supremacy and we think that it's like giving us some insight. In some cases, it may. It may. But what is the overall intent of films like Clansville, USA? And again, I watched the film. I will read the book that it is based on. And once I read the book, then I will critique the book because I know that sometimes they leave out stuff that's in a book 
And when it goes to, you know, the big screen, whether it's fictional, whether it is a documentary, that they still will leave things out of it. But here's the deal with this book. This book is promoting the notion that the Klan in the United States, I mean, excuse me, in North Carolina, which was the largest uh, membership in the country, 10,000 to 15,000 dedicated white supremacists, do paying white supremacists you know they support they support their organizations okay um you know sometimes we we not so much you know big shout out to all those who have donated to the black talk media project so anyway um yeah uh when i watched this film i was like no they not trying to say that these people were as a matter of policy not engaging in, in as many violent acts as those people were in Alabama or Mississippi, the white supremacists down there, you know, who were gunning people down. Uh, that is incorrect. They did gun down people, all right? They were engaged in acts of violence and let's just call it terrorism because that's what it is, terrorism. By the definition of the word terrorism, I know some of us like to use words that don't apply to something to try to describe it. Uh, but then when it comes to white terrorism, oh, that's not terrorism. Um, uh, you know, Miss Patton. Uh, but anyway, that's what, that's the impression that I got from the film. And being that, you know, I, except for the time that I spent in Detroit, uh, for, let me see, how long was I in Detroit? Uh, did I live in Detroit? Uh, let me see. I left when I was, left Detroit when I was 13, went there when I was two. So 11 years, 11 years that I, I, I spent in Detroit all the rest of my time outside of the time I spent in the military, the six years in there. I've been in North Carolina. Uh, my family has, has roots so far back in North Carolina that we was here before there was a North Carolina, a state called North Carolina. And I talked to my uncles. I have one uncle in particular, Franklin, uh, Reed, who's no longer with us, who has joined the ancestors, who love to talk anyway. Um, I mean, this man loved to talk. And I would sit around and listen to the stories, uh, that he would tell. And he told me about the Klan in Gaston County in Mount Holly. I went to school with one of the Grand Dragons of the Klan, uh, Virgil Griffith's son. I went to high school with this kid. All right. And, and so I know about the Klan, firsthand knowledge of the Klan. And, you know, from either my uncles and my aunts and my mother, uh, from my father. Oh, I know about it, you know, from what I seen. You know, there was a violent attack uh, against uh, a socialist workers party or something like that. It was a communist workers uh, union that was holding a march in Greensboro. This was in 1979, 1979, wasn't in the 60s. And the Klan killed them people that was in that march, killed about five people. So, again, for them to try to portray the Klan as being less violent and whatnot, you know, that was problematic uh, for me. Maybe Bob Jones, the leader at that time, the Grand Dragon at that time, yeah, maybe he didn't want to lose his, his, um, his, his, um, what would we call it, uh, his free ride, uh, cause, you know, he was living off, living high off the, the, off the hog. Uh, using the dues of these, of these, uh, 10 to 15,000 due paying, uh, white supremacists. And so maybe, you know, he, he publicly was not going to, 
uh, condone violence. Maybe publicly he was going to say that we're nonviolent and, and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, if he's giving a wink and a nod, then that's, you know, come on now. Let's not play games here. And again, there is a lot of documentation about the violence of the Klan in North Carolina. Now, it is true, technically, that there were not as many uh, uh, acts of murder and lynchings in North Carolina during this time period that, that uh, this film covers. Uh, but there was a reason for that. And the reason for that was not covered in this film. Uh, and I'm talking about black armed resistance. I'm not talking about marching. You know, I'm not talking about just sit-ins and things of that nature, being nonviolent, um, never raising a hand to your oppressor, you know, just letting them beat you all in the head and, and shoot you down and there's no retaliation. No, I'm talking about armed black self-defense and a lot of that was going on in, in north carolina my own family members my uncles engaged in it uh got into my uncle's shirt his name is franklin but we called him uncle shirt told me about you know shooting how he shot virgil griffin in the head where it just grazed his skull and he was mad at himself that he didn't blow his brains out and, you know, cause they had attacked him and some of his friends on the road and they got into a shootout. And, um, then when they burnt the cross in my grandfather's yard, cause my, uh, aunt was forced to go to this all white school during integration and how my uncles came out with their guns blazing to repel the terrorist, uh, attack. Uh, Robert F. Williams, the black guard. How can you do a film about the Klan? in North Carolina, but not mention Robert F. Williams and his wife, Mabel Williams, and the Black Guard, and, and all of these instances of, you know, you I didn't see you go talking to any, you talked to one black person who was the mayor in this film, who was the who's the mayor of some little town in North Carolina, and uh, um, I, I think her father was the victim, I'm not sure, uh, I can't recall right now. But you didn't talk to people who might be alive that know Robert Williams. Uh, Mabel Williams just died this uh, last year. They had her funeral in Monroe, North Carolina. You didn't talk to any other people who knew them. You didn't talk to any of their relatives. You didn't talk to any living members of the Black Guard in North Carolina about the violence of the Klan. And, you know, I thought it was that they, they said their intent was to you know, look at what was causing all of these poor white people to join the Klan and whatnot. What would make them become terrorists, even though they didn't use the word terrorist? That's totally legitimate. That's totally legitimate so that we can understand today why they are engaged in acts of terrorism. Uh, but it is totally illegitimate. It is totally illogical. It is, I believe, deception, engaging in deception to not mention that black people in North Carolina had created a deterrent to that terrorism. And that's why, you know, that the acts of terrorism by the Klan wasn't as widespread in North Carolina as it was in some of the other states. You think that might figure into it? I mean, if you got people you know you can just, just come in and kill them and lynch them and there's never going to be any kind of resistance or retaliation, well, that's just encouraging terrorism. That's encouraging bullying. You know, that's encouraging it. But when you're, when you're, uh, um, 
potential victim is known to be armed, known to shoot back, known to, you know, defend himself and defend his community, then, you know, you might think twice uh, before uh, you continue to engage in acts of violence. Uh, like Robert Williams said, the white supremacist uh, thought his life was so much valuable than black people that he wasn't going to lose his life out there trying to shoot it out with black people, okay? And, and so, like Robert F. Williams said, we created a deterrent in this state, and that's not brought out, brought out in this film whatsoever. And if you read the book, and I link to the P PDF copy of the book in my article, Negroes with Guns, uh, then you can can get firsthand knowledge from that time period of all the violent acts that they were committing against black people, which made black people then arm themselves. I mean, it was an organized effort. Churches even raised money and by holding raffles so that they can buy new weapons for the black guard. Okay? So, and, and then we're always presented, you know, this, this nonviolent passive, of resistance as the only form of legitimate resistance. We even saw that in Fer Ferguson again with black people saying, you know, you know, don't be in town after sundown or if you're not marching with us by day, then uh, you're not legitimate and things of that, that nature. So we're always presented with this narrative, this false narrative, this deceptive narrative that black people didn't engage in self-defense. All right that we didn't meet violence with violence, all right? And, and so when I found out that Dr. King had co-authored this book, and, and I'm still reading the book, I watched the film in its entirety, Negroes with Guns, had watched it before, but just wanted to refresh my memory after watching Clansville, USA. Uh, but I, I did not know that Dr. King had a hand in writing Negroes with Guns. And it opened up my eyes because one the last march, well, I'm not going to say it opened up my eyes, but it gave me more insight into why Dr. King's last march called the March Against Fear, he hired the deacons for defense to provide armed self-defense of that march. Was it not going to be another Selma? It was not going to be no police on horseback riding in, cracking heads open and, 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 you know, trampling black people with horses. No, it was not going to be, uh, that no more. Okay. And so he hired the deacons for defense. And so I, when I was reading the book, Negroes with Guns, I had discovered that Robert F. Williams had been in conversations with Dr. King about the the fact that armed self-defense could work in hand hand in hand with these nonviolent marches. For the people that want to get out there and march nonviolently, that's cool. We support that. That's what Robert F. Williams said. He said it is a viable tactic to raise awareness and to put pressure on the system. You know, by all of these people coming out marching, but that allowing these these terrorists to attack our people and kill our people, no, that is not that is not cool, and that is not logical, and it, it, it's you know we should not 
be be allowing ourselves to be treated like that. The white man don't allow himself to be treated like that. So and and so you know when I read that and and he was saying like even when they were doing the sit-ins around Monroe because they had already let it be known that we are not going to be easy prey, that we will fight back, we will shoot back, that when they did they sit-ins that those white people backed off, that they didn't even so much as spit on one of the protesters or, or the sit-ins of the people participating in the sit-ins because they knew that these were not the black folks to be messing around with. This was not Selma. This wasn't the other places where you were speak, spitting on people and, and throwing rocks at them and beating them and all this and that, that these people will meet violence with violence. If you try to prevent them from engaging in what should be their constitutional rights, all right, and, and, and standing up against injustice. And, and so that I didn't know that. And it's never promoted. They never do. They talk about Selma. They talk about, you know, the March on Washington, which was co-opted from the grassroots people. They talk about that. But they never talk about Dr. King's March on Fear. I only became aware of it last year. Where's the film about that? Where? Why did Dr. King hire these armed black men to provide security? Where's the documentaries about that? Huh? So, yeah. That's why I took issue with this film. It's because it whitewashed or whited out, you know, how they white. You got that stuff. When you make a mistake on a piece of paper, you white it out and, and then you can type over it. Yeah, they, they are constantly whiting out our history of, of armed self-defense. Do you think, I think Missouri is an open carry state, right? Do you think, do you think if, if people in, black people in Missouri, black people in Ferguson had already established a armed guard like we had here in North Carolina during Robert F. Williams time. If they had rifle clubs like Malcolm X told black people to, to create and that then while those people who wanted to march with their hands up and say, don't shoot, uh, what, what if they had been accompanying, accompanied or escorted by a armed guard? Do you think, do you think, that they would have been preyed upon by those police, by St. Louis County police, by Ferguson police. Huh? Do you think it would have been a different narrative then, wouldn't it? See what I'm saying? These are the things that they keep from us. And there is a reason why they are promoting half the story or, or even one quarter of the story. There is a reason why there is a concerted effort to disarm black people. So, yeah, that's that's what I had to say about it. Um, again, like I ended the article with um, a, a line from the song, the hit song by Marvin Gaye. I heard it through the great grapevine. When you're watching these documentaries, particularly if they're made by white people, particularly if they're made by racist suspects, you need to to t keep this in mind and this is a line from I heard it through the grapevine 
People say believe half of what you see, son, and none of what you hear. We have to stop just accepting these films, whether they be called documentaries, whether they be called, you know, fictional movies based on true stories. We have to stop accepting that as a, a, a accurate account. And we have to do our own research. There's a reason why they hide these things from us. What could that reason be? Perhaps those tactics worked and they don't want you engaged in those tactics. Like Robert F. Williams said, you know, why, why did when, when they shot up this police car that was escorting, you know, these clan to come shoot up the black community in Monroe and the black guard shot up the police cars in the Klansmen. Why wasn't that national news? Huh? Why, why wasn't CBS, ABC, uh, what it was, CBS, ABC, I forget the other, uh, big alphabet name, CBS. Why wasn't that a national story at that time? Huh? Because like Robert F. Williams said, they didn't want other black people getting any ideals about defending themselves through the second amendment so again we have to we have to do our research people again we live behind enemy lines there is a propaganda war being waged against black people and you know we think that some of these people may be allies that they may be you know after the truth and want to promote justice but then we find out they're engaged in deception, that they're not practicing what they're preaching. That was unjust. I, I know the primary uh, focus of this film was to explore why white people in North Carolina engaged in terrorism. Um, but how can you talk about the issue of white terrorism in North Carolina and not mention the black resistance to that terrorism? There was only one scene where they mentioned some black resistance, and that was in the in the community of Salisbury, which was Bob Jones's hometown, and how they was doing like they little daytime marches, you know, with their full regalia uh, in their hoods and, and in their robes, and they oh we just gonna run up in the black community, and the black community said oh no you're not, that we are not afraid of you. And if you come up in here, then it's going to be something getting started. So that's the only thing they show. I think that was like maybe 30 seconds, maybe one minute. But again, Robert Williams is internationally known. How can you talk about the Klan in the North Carolina and why they weren't engaged in as much terrorism as they was engaged in other states and not bring up that black deterrent. It's crazy, man. It's it's just crazy the things that we accept as truth and and we just keep moving without looking into it further. So we got to get out of that habit. We got to get out of that habit. Uh, Let me see. I do have a couple of more stories to share. Again, if you haven't read my article, um, The Whitewashing of Armed Black Resistance in North Carolina by the film Clansville, USA, 
please check it out. It's, it's published in the blog section of blacktalkradionetwork.com. Uh, tweet it out. Send a tweet. Share it with your friends on Facebook. Help us fight this propaganda war. You know, it's not, it, it's not even so much about promoting, uh, armed black self-defense, although I advocate that strongly, but it is about combating, you know, a false narrative. Cause we tend to think of NPR and, and PBS as friendly media to black people and things of that nature. And, and, you know, they're not, they're engaging in deception. They're promoting only one narrative. And there's a reason for that. So yeah, please share my article. I appreciate it. Uh, so that we can, uh, you know, get the truth out about history in North Carolina. You know, they just can't whitewash us out like that and think they're going to get away with it. And we're just going to, you know, just accept it as truth and, and not try to combat it. So yeah. Now, when I come back, I want to, uh, discuss the, the racial gap in local, uh, U.S. arrest rates, uh, staggering disparity. Uh, we've been sharing that information. I know I've seen Johanna share articles and stuff on New Abolitionist Radio's Facebook page. I've shared it. Uh, you know, some of these police departments, the arrest, uh, disparity is a hundred to one, just like the crack cocaine disparity. Wow. I just made that connection. It's a hundred to one, you know, stopping, frisking, and arresting black people on petty minor stuff, you know, so that you can either write them a ticket and take money out their family's pocket, take food out the mouths of their children, you know, have them not be able to pay the electricity bill that month and, you know, or, you know, plant some drugs on them or even if they can't find a job and so they may be forced to do something they otherwise not might not do and engage in, you know, the drug trade on the street market level. Uh, so you can arrest them and put them in prison while people like, uh, 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 what's his name again? Colonel Oliver North gets, uh, you know, host the show on Fox news and, and be put out there like an American hero when this man, you know, facilitated was one of the major players in the fil- facilitation of the crack cocaine epidemic that hit the United States. So, yeah, you're not arresting them people and, and whatnot. So, yeah, I want to talk about that. And then thousands show up for a gun and knife show in South Carolina. Uh, and, and guess what? It was not predominantly black people going to buy these guns. So those are two stories that I want to briefly touch upon. I'll check the phone lines to see if anybody has any uh, commentary about what they heard today about, you know, the letters to Trayvon participating in that media campaign uh, about Clansville, USA, and the whitewashing of armed black resistance out of that or any of the other stories. All right, I'm going to take another break, and then we'll come back, and I will share those two uh, last bit of news items with you. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com.
How do you describe desperation to someone who is not desperate? He began a letter to me from U.S. political prisoner Ojibwe Mutulo, who went on to depict everyone in the management control unit at Trenton State being woken up at 1 o'clock in the morning by guards dressed in riot gear, holding dogs. This country was born out of genocide. That's the political genesis of this slavery system, the political genesis of the prison system. This country was born out of genocide, a genocide, a genocide, a genocide, a genocide. That's the political genesis of this slavery system, a prison system. Slavery systems, the 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 prison system. This country was born out of genocide, a genocide, a genocide, a genocide, a genocide. We also recognize that individuals do not create rebellions, conditions do. Until they begin to address themselves to those conditions, rebellions will continue and they will escalate. They will escalate. Sometimes the question has been raised about why black men fight and have fought for this country. It is the black man's implacable will to be free that makes him fight for this country. And it is that same will that will make him fight this country, fight this country, fight this country. I want to address myself now to problems as they exist in the black community across America. And America cannot be considered as a stable and just society. But no stable and just society can mount a successful offensive against black youth who break a window and at the same time plead that it is powerless to protect black youth who are being murdered because they seek to make American democracy a reality, reality, reality. Each time a black church is bombed or burnt, that is violence in our streets. Each time a black body is found in the swamps of Mississippi and Alabama, that is violence in our land. Each time black white workers cannot be protected by the government, that is anarchy. Each time a police officer shoots and kills a black teenager, that is urban crime. You see, we recognize America for what it is, the fourth right. And we tell America to be on notice because if you are gonna play Nazis, Black folks ain't gonna play Jews, ain't gonna play Jews. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. You might notice there are a lot of people in town this week, and if you're wondering why, 
Because of this, the gun show is happening right now in Myrtle Beach at the convention center this weekend. Today, Connor McHugh went there to speak to organizers who say Myrtle Beach is a can't-miss show for both guests and vendors every year. The show comes to Myrtle Beach twice a year, and the organizers say it's with good reason. It's a combination of timing and location that will help get nearly 5,000 people through the doors this weekend alone. The trade show opened its doors early this morning, and so far, organizers say it's off to a great start. Those organizers aren't surprised, though, because of the months leading up to the event. Registration for vendors sold out months ago, leaving many without a table in the convention center. In all, there were 350 tables with nearly 125 vendors on Saturday. Event promoter Mike Kent says the line is so long to get a table because the January trade show is always the busiest. He says even though it's in Myrtle Beach's off-season, thousands always show up. One of the reasons why is because it's mostly people from South Carolina that come, so it's an easy trip for a long weekend in January. Also, Myrtle Beach is more equipped for an event like this than some of the other cities the show travels to. A lot of these guys do this for a full-time living, and so they're trying to get in every gun show they can. Uh, the economy is very good in Myrtle Beach compared to some other areas in South Carolina, so this is a must-go-to must show for a lot of our vendors. This gun show will wrap up on Sunday at around 5 p.m., but if you can wait a few months, they still have that second show later on in the year. Now, that show will again be at the convention center, on October 31st and November 1st. In the studio, I'm Connor McHugh, WMBF News. Black Talk Radio, the live drive at 5. My name is Scotty Reed. I'm in for this broadcast from behind these enemy lines. And so, yeah, um, that's the audio to a video I came across about this gun show. You know, in uh, Myrtle Beach, just a couple of hours from where I am in North Carolina. Uh, that's in South Carolina. And, you know, I'm looking at all of these people, uh, standing room only, you know, just crowded. You know, uh, I'm sure it was filled to capacity. Over 5,000 people uh, showed up to buy guns, and they were all white. I didn't even see, I'm, I'm sure it was a couple of black people in there, but I didn't see them in the footage that they took. Just wall to wall, nothing but white people uh, exercising their Second Amendment rights to arm themselves. And see, we, you know, you know, I don't mean I'm not trying to say this as a way to uh, be antagonistic or derogatory towards my own people. But I mean, the truth is what it is. You know, while we're stocking up on pieces of wood and cardboard and, and magic markers to make picket signs, White people is stocking up on AR-15s, handguns, ammunition, and everything else. And uh, that that track that I um you know opened that clip up with and closed that clip up with that was Father Ja, um, guns and Jordans. Where you gonna run? Where you gonna hide when your enemies buying guns and you buying Jordans? See what I'm saying? Again, that's why. I recommend everybody read Negroes with guns. Read it. Okay? Read it. Back then, we didn't have black churches getting behind, you know, anti-Second Amendment legislation, gun control legislation, trying to get guns off the streets, you know. No, 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 no. They were raising money to buy guns for the black guard. See? 
that that's just you know our history is so much hidden from us and some of the tactics uh, to resist racism and white supremacy and, and terrorism in this country is hidden from us. And what's promoted to us, oh, those white people are crazy, uh, they're gun nuts, and blah, 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 blah. But you see, at the Bundy Ranch, uh, those law enforcement officers didn't run up on them. Even had a black person down there at the Bundy Ranch with a gun. Now, I'm not stupid. I'm not, you know, uh, going to act like, you know, that they still wouldn't run up on us. But at least, you know what I'm saying, uh, you know, in, in warfare, uh, there's supposed to be casualties on both sides, not just one side. And that when you present yourself as an easy, as easy prey, then the predator is going to stalk you and he's going to prey upon you. And we have to send a different message. Things are just, I don't want to say they've gotten out of hand. They've been out of hand. They have been out of hand. So Negroes with guns seem to be a logical solution that actually got positive results. And that result was uh, less black people getting shot down in the streets by racists. All right, so yeah. We have to stop allowing people to uh, guide us in the way that they want us to act. And, and then, you know, again, with the respectability po uh, politics, I don't care how you act, how you dress, you be in a three-piece suit, driving a Cadillac, and still get racially profiled and gunned down in the street while reaching for your wallet. So this respectability stuff, again, let's compare it to an abused spouse. What do we tell abused spouse? Get out the relationship. You need to get out the relationship. You know, what did Whoopi Goldberg tell Oprah's character in uh, The Color Purple? Heaven to come, uh, heaven can wait. You better go upside Mr. Head with a skillet. You know? So, yeah. I just think it's important that uh, we arm ourselves and that we engage in the kind of activity that the uh, Huey P. Newton uh, Gun Club is engaged in down there in Dallas, Texas. I would like to see more of that. Um, there's a Facebook page. Uh, I think it's Black Gun Owners is the name of that page. I follow the page. And, um, yeah, we need to be embracing means of survival and not, you know, keep doing the same things over and over and expecting a different result. Those people aren't crazy that's going down there buying all those guns. They're not crazy. They're engaged in warfare. That's what they're, they're preparing for war, whether that be against, you know, a government that enslaves people by the millions, takes their land, and just does whatever it wants to do. Uh, or whether it is against us, even though we're not threatening them. They're being brainwashed to think that we are a threat to them. So, you know, they're not crazy. They're called preppers. They are preparing for whatever. We hope it don't never come down to that. But just in case it do, it's better to have 
than not to have. That, you know, that's all I got to say on that. Uh, the last story, um, racial gap in U.S. arrest rates, staggering, uh, disparity. I did have a clip, but the clip really isn't, really isn't revealing much. Um, it's just a, a protest. But I have linked to the article, and I'll read a little bit from the article that appeared on one of my local sites, WCNC, uh, no, local news sites, uh, WCNC.com. Um, and it says, when it comes to racially lopsided arrest, the most remarkable thing about Ferguson, Missouri, might be just how ordinary it is. Police in Ferguson, which erupted into days of racially charged unrest after a white officer killed an unarmed black teen, arrest black people at a rate nearly three times higher than people of other races. At least 1,581 other police departments across the United States of America arrest black people at rates even more skewed than in Ferguson. A U.S. Today analysis of arrest records shows that includes departments in cities as large and diverse as Chicago and San Francisco and in the suburbs that encircle St. Louis, New York, and Detroit. Those disparities are easier to measure than they are to explain. They could be a, a reflection of biased policing. They could just as easily be a byproduct of the vast economic and educational gaps that persist across much of the USA. Factors closely tied to crime rates. In other words, experts said the fact that such disparities exist does little to explain their causes. Now, he goes on to say that doesn't mean police are discriminating. Um, it may not, well, you're trying to be politically correct, but I think it does. And that's why I believe there should be a hate crime classification for racial profiling, which is against, you know, the treaty that the United States signed, the conference to eliminate racism and discrimination. They're violating clear violation of people's human rights under international law, but the United States refuses to implement this sign that, you know, one of their heroes, Ronald Reagan, I was shocked that Ronald Reagan pushed this through. Ronald Reagan and Republicans pushed this piece of uh, uh, this treaty through, but they didn't implement it, so go figure. They were just trying to show the world, oh, yeah, we're against racism, discrimination. We ain't got a problem with signing this treaty, Uh, but then when they got back home, look, we may have signed that treaty, but we're not going to implement it, okay? Because we need to racially profile these Negroes so that we can fill up the prison plantation so we can make money off of the backs, off their backs. So, no, uh, it does mean police are discriminating. So, anyway, that, that was a Pittsburgh law professor, David Harris, a leading expert on racial profiling. I might try to get him on the program, get some CC, see if we can get him on the program to discuss racial profiling and why um, all legislation that has been proposed to make it a hate crime under federal laws have not gone through. I mean, I've never really even heard of it being pushed. So, yeah, that is something uh, most definitely will be worth our time in investigating uh, this racial profiling. Again, some of the statistics show arrest rates as high as 100 to 1. Same as the 
old coke, crack cocaine to powder disparity. See, cause they were catching all these white people with powder cocaine, whereas in the inner cities, you know, it was, it was cocaine mixed with baking soda and something. So even though these people had the stuff that was more pure, uh, no, black people, you get hundred, a hundred times, uh, a hundred times more time on your sentence. Uh, when we already put you in, uh, legalized 13th Amendment approved slavery. All right. Okay. Well, that is our program for today. I will be back on the air tomorrow. Uh, let me take a quick review of the calendar and see who we have coming on tomorrow. Uh, we have brother Christopher Irvin who will be joining us tomorrow to talk about, um, um, strategy. Uh, something that he feels we should be talking about, and that is criminal record expungements. Um, that you know, even people with nonviolent um records, you know, didn't harm another individual. That that's leading them into poverty. They're using that as an excuse not to give you a job, to legally discriminate against you. And since you know, black people are being targeted a hundred to one in some of these uh 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 places across america it's more likely that those people are going to end up with a criminal record which is going to hinder legal employment and you know push them into a quote-unquote life of crime you know and so yeah it is important area of law to look at uh criminal record expungements again you know i had gotten convicted of communicating a threat you know, somebody bothering me, bothering my children, and I said what I said. Uh, but then, you know, when I, when that black judge convicted me and he saw my antagonist, uh, further antagonize me in front of him, in front of everybody in the courtroom, uh, he expunged my record. So yeah, I think it is important to, uh, discuss this. And Christopher Irvin, brother out of Baltimore, will be joining us tomorrow, uh, to have that discussion all right peace and blessings to all recognize the fact that you live behind enemy lines and conduct yourselves accordingly peace and blessings to all party people party people get funky so silent folks get funky yo get funky yeah, I just hit me. Just hit me. Just get on down and hit me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.